Alright all you movie junkies, it is time for the SLS Cast, with your hosts Matt and Tim. And welcome one and all to episode 77 of the SLS Cast. Yes ladies and gentlemen, it is the Matt episode, because I was born in 1977. Woo! That's right. And you already know who I am. And look who's live with us today. Not on not not through the magic of technology, but through the miracle of commercial airlines, travel and <laughs> vehicles that have been around since the 19 teens and everything. We have Tim. That's right. And you know, now we can't uh, blame everything on Skype messing up. <laughs> We haven't been able to do that for a long time. Yeah, but I mean, even usually if it's not Skype, we will say, "Sorry, guys, Skype just messed up." So now we have no, you know, no no fallback. We could pretend that we're using the same holographic technology that brought us Tupac and Michael Jackson, and that you are here via hologram. Oh wow, that would be way the fuck expensive, though, and we certainly don't have that ability. At all. We would like to, though. I mean, it'd be... <laughs> I would totally take that ability. I mean, I'd probably just sell it and pay off all my debts and, you know, and then we could, like, get a real website and a real, like, real gear and, you know... Could you use, like, holographic gear? I don't know. It's all, like, Jordy LaForge it up here, like, Star Trek holodeck and shit. Yeah. Jordy. Yeah. Reading Rainbow. Hey, he just had a really successful Kickstarter. For reading Rainbow, yes, he's bringing he. Okay, oh, seriously, so, yes. Oh wow! So, uh, reading Rainbow got canceled uh, back in two thousand nine. It had been on for about thirty years, and the problem was is that the funding that they used for reading enrichment that PBS had dedicated for that, so that people would love to read, that funding was redirected due to uh, for learning to read, so that programs like Super Y. Uh, which, of course, you know about being not a parent, right, Tim? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and, um, and so programs like that that teach kids how to read yeah. get the program, get the, got the money because with No Child Left Behind, it switched from reading enrichment and a love of reading to just learning how to read because that's what became most important. Yeah. And with that, PBS said, sorry, Reading Rainbow. And he was like, well, you know, Sullivar Burton is kind of like, well, what the fuck, man, right? And he ended up getting with a a production partner of his, and they literally formed a new company and then bought the rights to Reading Rainbow Mm -hmm. and bought the name and turned it into an app on the iPad. They are now trying to grow that from the app, which was like within 36 hours became like the number one educational app for the iPad. Yeah. To changing it so that it brings it to the Android system, also though to the internet as a full-on subscription website, and then also to classrooms. So they're trying to do it so that they can set up so when so when they officially launch with the website and everything, um, like Title One schools and things of that nature would actually get full subscription classroom subscriptions for free. Yeah, and he 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 announced this. I want to say like. Two days ago, mm-hmm. and like on the first day, they got over a million dollars. Oh wow! Their goal on Kickstarter was a million dollars. Oh wow! They have thirty-four days left, and as of this morning, a few hours ago, when I had looked into it, 
they had like 1.7 million dollars. Oh wow! Yeah, and it's awesome. They got all the stuff on there, and it's really cool. So, but I, it's so like I wanted to like really try and see if I could donate, like you know, fund this Kickstarter for something really kick ass because he's giving away like dinners, um, you know, reading. Skype conversations, phone conversations, <laughs> you know, all that shit's gone. The only yeah. thing that's left, like, aside from helping people, because I guess we should want to help people, right? Yeah. Um, the only cool thing that's left is a one-shot offer. So the first person who does this, who donates at $10,000 or more, will get... All of the goodies that you get, like a t-shirt and a bumper sticker and, you know, knowing yeah. that you helped people, whatever. Yeah. Uh, and and, and <laughs> helping a classroom. You also get, like, classroom funding at that point. But you get to go to LeVar Burton's house. Uh, you have to pay to go out there, but you get to go to his house. Um, and when I say pay, I mean, like, you have to buy your fly, own flight. Fly and to and get right, over there. Right. Gotcha. Um, but you get to go to his house and put on... The Jordy LaForge visor. He actually has the original <laughs> visor in a box, which he shows on the Kickstarter video. He's like, you could even get to do this. And he pulls out this oak box with a hinge and brass and opens it up and then pulls out the visor. And it's the actual original visor he wore on Star Trek Next Generation. And you get to wear it. I would love to see you wearing the Jordy LaForge that would visor. require a picture of me, and we don't do those. No. Well, <laughs> it, we can superimpose your and superimpose <laughs> your face with the glasses onto I don't know. Well, sure, we can do that. Do you have like a Do you have like a body? I'm um, like like a like an actor you you wish that you looked like. Okay, when I was young and thin and good looking. Okay, which okay. was you know, which is about. 16, 17 years ago. Yeah. Right. <clears throat> um. I actually was told that I looked a lot like Ben Affleck during that time, you know. Yeah. Uh, which is actually kind of funny. I was at the Vista Ridge Mall in uh, Louisville, Texas. It's a suburb of Dallas. Gotcha. And I was at the food court. I was waiting for a friend. We were meeting up there, and then we were going to carpool together to go out. I don't even remember, bar or something like that, right? Yeah. And this girl comes up to me, and she's like, oh, my God, it's you. And I was like, what? <laughs> She's like, no, no, I, it, it's you. It's, and I was like, and, and then it clicked. And I'm like, oh, no, no, no. I just look like Ben Affleck. I'm not really him, you know. She's like, no, no, oh, it's okay. Can I get an autograph? And I'm like, sweetheart, no. I mean, I, I appreciate it. That's very nice. But I am not Ben Affleck. I, yeah. You know? And she's like, no, no, please. Can I have a... So I literally, I pull out my wallet. And I show her my driver's license, and she looks at me dead fucking serious, and she's like, well, I know Ben Affleck's not your real name. Oh, wow. Yeah. Wow, that's what they say about <laughs> Dallas people. Am I right? And, uh, yeah, Yikes. so I went ahead and just signed my name, right, my real name, to a napkin and gave it to her and said, you have a good day. And So somewhere, somebody <laughs> but... is saying that Matt Quinton is the new Batman. Yes, yes. I'm Batman. <laughs> and now, as you can see with my lovely picture of my daughter up there, now I'm just a fat, like, piece of shit. But hey, you, you've, you've lost weight since I last I, seen you. Well, thank you. I've lost 30 pounds since you last That's seen good. Me. Since yeah. it's been I go to the months. gym and everything, you, you know, so, yeah. 
Good. What, do you go to the 24-hour? I do. I, I go to this 24-hour, you know, for all the internet stalkers out there. Yeah. yeah. I go to the 24-hour fitness right next yeah. to my house. The, one of the many fitness clubs that converted the old Kroger. Into was that a Kroger? I, I thought it was an, used to be a Kroger. I, I don't know. Yeah. I know it used to be a grocery store. I thought it was like an Albertsons or something. Maybe. But I don't know. It kind of looks like an old Kroger. For Kroger people, or... <laughs> For those that are not familiar with Kroger, uh, Kroger is also owned by, or also owns Ralph's yes, in the West and, Coast. And, and on the uh, Pacific Northwest, they own Fred Meyer. When yeah, that sounds like a car dealership. Yes, they're at, upon their acquisition of Fred Meyer back in like 99 or 2000, they actually became the biggest grocery store chain oh, really? in the United States, yes. Oh, really? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And if you want to see what a Fred Meyer looks like, yeah. uh, just go up Kirkendall uh, about, what, Seven miles up Kirkendall on the right-hand side, just yeah. past West Rayford. Yeah, um, it is the brand new Kroger Marketplace or something. And I was going to say something about that. That is a Fred Meyer. I have not been to this big Kroger Marketplace. I've been noticing so much develop. Oh, I'm Tim, by the way. And <laughs> I've <have>, uh... <laughs> nice. Okay, and, and I've noticed uh, you know development everywhere. Like HEBs are going up, like. Oh yeah. To, yeah, you know it's ridiculous. And Dairy Queen, I think like Dairy Queen is like the next big thing for the spring tomball area. <laughs> yeah, you know. I like Dairy Queen. Yeah, but I mean, I'm just not used to seeing like them popping up everywhere. It's like that's kind of the last place, last uh, uh, fast food chain. You know, I, I would think you know like Dairy Queens. Hey, I don't see how you can go wrong with a franchise whose tagline is. DQ, that's what I like about Texas. That's true. Yeah, yeah. And for those of you who don't know what Dairy Queen is, <laughs> there are also Dairy Kings in the, I was like central U.S., in like the Chicago area. I think it's Dairy King. I am not familiar with said Dairy King. Yeah, I think it's the same thing. At least my dad, he was a... Back in Illinois, they would go to Dairy Dairy. Queen. I always thought in the Midwest and uh, you know the Yanks, they had Tasty Freeze or Tasty Freeze. Yeah, you know. I don't know. Do, do they have something similar on the West Coast? Because um, they, they, I mean, I want to say you can still get a Dairy yeah. Queen in Hicksville, like up in the Pacific Northwest. Yeah, where I'm, where I, where I have had stomping grounds. Um, they have Dairy Queens. They have in, Dairy Queens up in, there in LA. Oh, okay, yeah, they well, do. Oh, okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. But I mean, but there's also a lot more like competition there with like the little niche or niche little like ice cream parlors and stuff like that. Like those places do really well over there, opposed to here, like where we live here in the Spring Houston area. It's more so like the like Cold Stone and. Going to right, Dairy Marble Queen. Slab and yeah, yeah, sure. yeah, 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 yeah. So that's more popular here. But yeah, this Kroger Marketplace. I haven't been in there yet, but I've heard tales of it. And this place rivals Walmart. Super. Walmart. I have not been in yet. The only reason I even remotely know that it is a Fred Meyer is uh, there was a Fred Meyer Jewelers. There's a Fred Meyer Jewelers thing up there. Oh, really? Yeah. And I was like, hey, Fred Meyer Jewelers. I was like, well, of course that would make sense. Yeah. You know? But then my wife has been in there because my sister-in-law lives like. You know, half a mile away from yeah. that. So my my sister, my my wife is visiting her sister a lot, right? Because you know that's what apparently family, family does. does I, yeah. You know, I don't know. I saw my sister for the first time in like three years yeah. yesterday, and um, and so she went in there. And she's like, "Oh yeah, it's a Fred Meyer." I was like, "Oh well, hey, that's that's great. I would like to go in there." 
Yeah, you can, not only can you buy food, but you can buy a couch as well, apparently. Oh, wow, they have a furniture section there, too? Yeah, you can buy Holy stuff. Holy shit! And you can, and, and, and shirts, and Well, I know about the clothes. They, they, yeah, the Fred Meyer, uh, that was my very first, like, real job. I was a cart pusher and a yeah. stalker and a bag boy at Fred Meyer. And, uh, yeah, in Federal Way, Washington. Was where was where it was, and uh, <laughs> back in my day, uh, you know, but yeah. So it was the grocery store, and then of course the big marketplace stuff with the huge deli and all that kind of shit, right? Yeah. For those familiar with like an H E B or uh, even like a big Safeway, like mm-hmm. a good Safeway because they got those out there in the yeah. West Coast. Um, so they got the big huge thing, and then they would have uh, the big clothing section. And the, of course, the jeweler, jewelers and stuff. And then they had like it was like a, a Home Depot kind of section. They had a huge hardware section and everything as well. And then yes, but I did not realize that they actually had furniture there now. They do. And this brings me kind of to my uh, this little interesting news. Uh, well, what my, what has Matt coined? News of the weird. For the opening of the show, sure, absolutely. And, and this it's is this probably is, about fucking time we got there. Yeah, yeah. yeah. What are we at? Like, for I don't know, fifteen like minutes. minutes? In. Oh, <laughs> uh, well, this ties <clears throat> into store mannequins and twelve years a slave. Okay. <laughs> and this is a Cinnablend article entitled. <laughs> it's written by uh, Mac Rawden, and it's entitled "Customers Complain About Twelve Years a Slave Store Mannequin," and this is what it says. Stores are always on the lookout for ways to jazz up their displays. The more eyeballs they can attract, the more merchandise they sell, they'll sell, at least in theory. Unfortunately, an attempt to add a little pizzazz to a display of 12 Years a Slave has developed into accusations, apologies, and plenty of regret. <laughs> and this is what it looks like, if you want it, to... It's really not that... <laughs> bad but what gets me is like you see the display you see the movies and you see the poster right next to it and i don't know how would you explain this mannequin i mean it's really it shoddy appears put up. to be it, it it simply just appears to be uh the fashion plate of the cover here i mean right but it's a white mannequin well that's a bit of a problem but you know people dress like that white people dress like that too maybe it's not meant to be are you more uh, universal? No, no, I think I think maybe it's meant to be flattery, right? The yeah. imitation is the sincerest form of flattery. It's maybe not meant to be offensive. Uh, it's just meant to be flattering. Yeah. <laughs> you know, like, see, we want to wear this stuff, too. We we want to win Oscars, too. I we want to go back to our roots, <laughs> literally. And I, this is, it, this, I mean, this is in Europe somewhere. Probably in London. So... Uh, they're they're not even going back to their own roots, really. You know, I mean, okay, it'd be a little bit less forgivable in London, where they have a larger, or even in France too, where they have a larger African population. As uh, but maybe it's from like Scandinavia or something, and they just don't have black mannequins there. Do you know? Is that like a fact? No, I'm just figuring that you know when you go with. Uh, here we're big cultural melting pot, right? Or depending on how politically correct you are, a tapestry. But there, in in England and in France, that where they have a larger uh, ethnic population, yeah. then there would be a wider 
selection of mannequins and mannequin styles to match the population, whereas in places like Scandinavia that have smaller ethnic populations, maybe that's what's going on. Well, it says here that the exposure has created a mini-scandal and led to a lightning-fast apology from Sainsbury's. So it's wherever the Sainsbury's department store is. And this is what they said. They say that, quote, we can, apolog- we can only apologize. It's been taken down from the Hayford Hill store. Hayford Hill store. Sounds British. Yeah. And clearly I'm, I'm should never right. have gone up in the first place, in all quotes. And there's more here. And they also kind of compare it to what they say a... Far, 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 far more tame example of the 9-11 museum gift shop controversy. Whatever that is. I'm sadly not familiar with that one. I, uh, we, we but yeah, I, honestly, I really think that this was just kind of misplaced. I think they were just more or less trying to show off the clothing, period clothing, for whatever reason. And I like you see the mom in the background shopping at the Sephora. Or like getting cosmetics <laughs> in the background, <laughs> wearing a uh, wearing high pants. Craziness, craziness. Yeah. I yeah, that's just yeah. I'm glad they took it down though, because even if the even if it would, that's just kind of weird. What, yeah, are we gonna start having mannequins of people next to any displays going forward when you're at the Kroger? Yeah. <laughs> What are you going to do for Nymphomaniac? Or... Just a blow-up doll. I'm <laughs> a blow-up doll with a gun. There you go. All right, so should we do real news now? Yes. By God, please, let's do it. <laughs> All right, folks, here we are. The news! The news. All right. First up for me, coming to us from NewYorkDailyNews.com, spelled NYDailyNews.com, <laughs> courtesy of Zaida Rivera, Molly Ringwald, cast in Jim and the Holograms live-action movie. The 80s film star is going back to her roots with a role in the film based on the cartoon series of the same era. The movie, based on the 1980s hit cartoon series, Gem and the Holograms, yes, has cast major star from that era, Molly Ringwall, and this was according to People. Uh, all it says, though, is that she is set to take part in the live-action reboot, but they don't say in what role. I have no idea what role she could possibly play given that she's in her 40s now. Um, She's actually 46, which is not a problem in terms of just general age, but Jem is like 20 or something like that. Um, I'm ashamed to say that I have never been able to escape Jem and the Holograms. Uh, My sister loved watching it when I was a kid. Uh, My first wife also didn't it wasn't even a guilty pleasure. She just straight up fucking liked that show and and had it on VHS and would just watch it every once in a while. Yeah. And then I come to find out that my current wife also likes Gem and the Holograms. And even when I tried to get her to stop watching by pointing out that my ex-wife liked Gem and the Holograms, I figured surely that would work. Nope. Never has not stopped her. It's on Netflix and now my girls watch it as well. 
Huh. Which one's better, them or Josie and the Pussycats? Well, I would have to say that music-wise, I guess Jem is better. Uh, personally, for me, I like J- the Josie and the Pussycats. I, I'm, yeah. I'm sorry. You like you know. the name. I love the name. And I love the movie. As I've attested to before in the like one of our very first I'm the only one who likes it. Or yeah. whatever, uh, I loved the, the Josie and the Pussycats movie. And uh, just, God, it was just gold. I just don't understand why it never took off. It's so fucking funny. Um, and if you, especially if you watch it today, you can totally see where the music industry was going. I think it was just too, it was just ahead of its time. Yeah. Really, because you know, they have like, they're staying in rooms themed by corporate sponsorship. So one person's in a Revlon room, one person's in a Target room, one person's in a, and these are their hotel rooms, right? So, yeah. One's in a McDonald's room and stuff. It's just hilarious. Yeah. Anyway, how true is that? Yeah, it's hilarious. I'm sorry. So, what do you got for us, sir? All right, what's so I, up first? I got a bit of Star Wars news real quick. I'm going to knock out in a Ooh. hopefully timely manner. Uh, first up, they re- are okay. This is according to the German website Star Wars Union via Geek Tyrant, and it's uh, from a uh, they attended a, a Hasbro event. And apparently they released, Lucasfilm, Disney or whatever, released the upcoming theatrical schedule for the new upco- for the new Star Wars movies and spinoffs and whatnot. And this is how they have them listed. 2014, you have the release of Star Wars Rebels, which is the new animated Star Wars oh, show. sure. <clears throat> 2015, we have Star Wars Episode 7. 2016, we have what they have written here, Boba Fett. Uh... 2017, Star Wars Episode 8. 2018, Han Solo. 2019, Star Wars Episode uh, 9. And then finally, 2020, Star Wars Red 5. And so a lot of people are saying that the Star Wars Red 5 is based on the 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 uh, uh, the Squadron. Rogue the, Squadron. Yeah, the Rogue yeah. Squadron. And, uh, yeah, so they're hoping to bring back some of the... I, People are hoping that they're going to bring back some of the original guys, the original Rogue Squadron guys. All you got to do is talk to Ewan McGregor. His uncle was, uh, um, oh, good lord, now I can't remember his name. Damn it. This guy? Yeah. Yeah. That's Ewan McGregor. Ewan McGregor? What? Ewan McGregor's uncle. uh, Union McGregor. Yeah, well, apparently he didn't... Uh, Which is he, helpful that we're pointing at a computer screen and not know, telling anybody what God, his name yeah, is. Yeah, lo- this is what he looks like. <laughs> yeah, well, they don't have it. Do they at least have his name? No. Oh, that's terrible. Somebody needs to, like, tell us what the fuck his name is. <laughs> Just go to cinemablend.com slash new slash Star Wars standalone movie may focus Red Squadron X-Wing Fighters slash 43081.html. There you and go. You'll see it. Uh. Union McGregor. Uh, and the next bit of Star Wars news. If it'll get there. All right. So, if it'll get there. Drew Stretson, he designed a lot of famous movie posters. A lot of famous movie posters. And he, uh, he the, known for the drawings and the paintings and all that stuff, he did the newer Star Wars movies. He did... The re-release of the original Star Wars movies. However, he didn't do the original Star Wars, like the the original, you know, first posters for it. Apparently, he didn't do those. I don't have the guy's name who did those. 
But he went into retirement, and he said he's not going to do anything else. However, according to a Cinnablin article, they quote here something from Schmoes No, where they say that Schmoes No slipped the scoop this morning that Struzan, the man behind countless double-sided masterpieces, has been asked to come back to the Star Wars family and provide art for Star Wars Episode Seven. The story was provided by a close source to Mr. Struzan, who also said that J.J. Abrams gushed like any fanboy would over the famed artist's career as he had contacted him to arrange to arrange this new deal. So that's fun and exciting. Sure. Can, uh, I, can I jump in on some Star Wars news too? Yeah. Or did you have extra Star Wars news? I have. I have two more things, but you can go ahead. Okay. Let me. I'm going to jump in no. here. I've got some Star Wars-related interesting stuff from HollywoodReporter.com, courtesy of Boris Kitt. Uh, Turns out that Star Wars uh, spinoff has hired Godzilla director Gareth Edwards. Also, in an update, Gary Whitta is writing the script for the movie, which which has now had a release date of December 16th, 2016. The only thing that they don't know for sure... Is which spinoff in the list of spinoffs that you mentioned that it's gonna be? But that oh, that the guy he's writing. Well, that, it's Gareth, Gareth Edwards. So yeah, Fresh Boba off, Fett. I think it's Boba Fett. Most likely yeah, is what. Saying. Yeah, most likely. But they they have not uh, outright said which one that it's gonna be. But yeah, it's so Gary Wood is gonna be writing, and of course he's uh, Book of Eli, and then Godzilla's. Very own Gareth Edwards will be directing. Godzilla. 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 So yeah, so go ahead, sorry. Didn't okay. cut you off. Oh no, it's fine. It's fine. Things are moving a little bit slow and sticky on my end. Not sexual. <laughs> um I'm trying not to have a million gazillion cinema blend news and actually go to the source of stuff, but things are just aren't pulling up right now. So I'll just uh, stick with uh, cinema blend stuff. Uh, from an article entitled, Read About the Star Wars Sequel That Almost Replaced The Empire Strikes Back. And this is written by Mike Reese from uh, earlier uh, this month. And they say that Screen Crush recently recounted the story, which might be familiar to two diehard fans, of how famed science fiction novelist and filmed adaption star to the original trilogy, Alan Dean Foster, was tapped to write a backup plan for a smaller scale follow-up to uh, A New Hope. They even grabbed some new quotes from Foster via phone interview. This second option, as the author explains, was drafted smaller in case the returns from the Star Wars were lesser than stellar, and was titled Splinter of the Mind's Eye, focusing more on Luke and Leia, seeing as Mark Hamill and Carrie Fisher were the only two Star Wars, or stars, on the only two stars contractually on board at the time, we saw the pair stranded on the swamp planet of Memban. Through their adventure, Luke and Leia discovered Memban was a strategic mining outpost for the Empire. The story ended with a climatic lightsaber battle between Darth Vader and Princess Leia herself. After Luke ends up pinned down by a rock. Um, and then finally, the last bit of Star Wars news, I promise. This is just interesting. I came across this today. And it's another Cinema Blend article. And it's entitled... <laughs> Long-lost Chinese Star Wars comic reveals Darth Vader's obsession with Florida. 
written by Mike Reese. And it says, <laughs> During the height of the American space program, the Florida-based Kennedy Space Center was a crown jewel in the United States' quest to reach the stars. Naturally, naturally, this got the attention of the world, and in particular, the attention of Russia and China, two of the United States' greatest opponents in the Cold War. However, there was one leader, and we never knew had their, right, or had their sights on Florida's historical spaceport, Darth Vader. You didn't know that that Lord Vader was obsessed with the Kennedy Space Center? At least he was according to a newly discovered Chinese comic adaptation of Star Wars, which rivals the comic adaptation of George Lucas's original concept for the title of the wildest reimagination of the classic story. Courtesy of the South China Morning Post, we had the first look that anyone's had at this Lian Huanahana comic consisting of one panel images loosely based on 1977 Star Wars Episode 4 A New Hope. Of course, seeing as this wasn't a licensed comic adaptation, there was a lot of poetic and visual license taken with the finished product. And if we can take a look, and maybe maybe Matt can tell you. This is so much more fun to be able to look at these things when you're talking about them. Your listenership is very important to us. Please remain on the line while we look at pictures on the internet. I'm yeah, I not seeing Florida here, but I am seeing these stills here. Like you got Vader looking in front of something called the Target. Uh, which is yeah. kind of interesting there. They're neat pictures, though. Yeah, yeah. So you can go back and read this, read the rest of this. So it's very interesting. Again, article, cinemablend.com, long-lost Chinese Star Wars comic reveals Darth Vader's obsession with Florida, the Sunshine State. Woo! And, you would, and here you thought it was just Disney's Hollywood Studios, right? With Star Wars weekends <laughs> and Star Tours and stuff? Yeah. All right, well, then I'm going to bridge us away from Star Wars by going to a Variety.com article courtesy of Justin Kroll. Roberto Orsi, or Orsi, I guess Orsi, Roberto Orsi to direct Star Trek Three. After weeks of rumblings that Roberto Orsi was the frontrunner, sources have told Variety that Skydance and Paramount have indeed tapped Orsi to direct Paramount and Skydance's Star Trek III. Orsi is currently writing the story with J.D. Payne and Patrick McKay and had been campaigning to replace J.J. Abrams as director for some time. Abrams is busy with directing the next installment of the Star Wars franchise and will only be producing the pick. Yay! I don't know how I feel about that because he was the writer for the first two Star Trek movies. Well, I like the first one. Yeah. And he may have penned the story, but it was Abrams' decision to go with it. And it was also Abrams' decision to run it the way it ran. Good point. Good point. So I will give him the benefit of the doubt and let's see where he takes this. Now, if we start seeing story stuff coming in line that's like totally screwed up and we get fucking search for Spock, I'm gonna be pissed off. If there is so much as a whisper of a fucking humpback whale in this next movie, I'm gonna be really pissed off. But uh, What if it's a blue whale? 
Or a, or a sperm whale. I don't want whales at all in the next Star Trek movie. Do- dolphins? Maybe. <laughs> Maybe dolphins. <laughs> uh, yeah. All right. So just to totally take us away from this and just something completely out of the blue. Uh, coming to us from popculturemarketingblog.com, courtesy of Patrick Coyne. A Million Ways to Die in the West releases Oregon style, uh, Oregon Trail style game. In a promotion of the new movie, A Million Ways to Die in the West, Universal Studios has partnered with AdultSwim.com to release an online 8-bit style game called Trail to the Old Stump. To be clear, the game is exactly like Oregon Trail, and it is amazing. Trail to the Old Stump is every bit as difficult as you remember Oregon Trail to be. But unlike Oregon Trail, this game features the raunchy and irreverent humor you'd expect from Seth MacFarlane. They have a little image still that says, Here lies Pat, died by a horny wild boar. (laughs) Alright. Now, I am uh, someone who has not been able to experience this game as much as I loved Oregon Trail growing up. I was a big fan of Oregon Trail and all that good stuff and dying of dysentery and thinking that it was smart to be the banker because you had all the money but you couldn't shoot for shit so you'd just die of starvation anyway. Yeah. Um, I, I don't typically get to play Adult Swim games because I have my computer set up so that there's uh, Adblock Plus and, uh, and Ghostery and, you know, and Lightscape and all this kind of stuff so that I can actually browse in peace. Yeah. So I can't... So websites have gotten smart now, all these content providers. So a lot of them who have, like, just tons of fucking shit that want to bombard you with stuff just simply won't let you access the content unless you turn the stuff off. Yeah. So I don't, have you played this yet? I have not. I've not even heard of it. Oh yeah, I would love to play this game. I can't play it unfortunately. So yeah. Anyway, so there's that. And I guess you know what do you have next? Okay, something technical here. Ooh, technical. Uh, this is from MIT News, Mit News, if you will. Uh, an article entitled "Glasses Free." 3D projector. New design could also make conventional 2D video higher in resolution and in contrast. This is from an article written on May, or that was released May 16th, 2014, written by Larry Hardesty from the MIT News office. And this is, I'm just going to read a little bit of it. It's kind of a meaty and lengthy article here, but uh, highly recommend you guys checking it out. But this is kind of the opening of it. Over the past three years, Researchers in the Camera Culture Group at the MIT Media Lab have studied, excuse me, have steadily refined a design for a glasses-free, multi-perspective 3D video screen, which they hope could provide a cheaper and more practical alternative to holographic video in the short term. Now, they've designed a projector that exploits the same technology, which they'll unveil at this year's SIGGRAPH, the major conference in computer graphics, the projector can also improve the resolution and contrast of conventional video, which could make it an attractive transitional technology as content producers gradually learn to harness the potential of multi-perspective 3D. Multi-perspective 3D differs from the stereoscopic 3D now common in movie theaters in that the depictive objects, the depicted objects, disclose new perspectives as the viewer moves around them just as real objects would. This means that it might have applications in areas like collaborative design and medical, Im- uh, in medical imaging, as well as entertainment. 
The MIT researchers, research scientist Gordon Wetzine, graduate student Matthew Hirsch, and Ramesh Raskar, or Raskar, the NEC Career Development Associate Professor of Media Arts and Scientists and head of the Camera Culture Group, built a prototype of their system using off-the-shelf components. The heart of the projector is a pair of liquid crystal modulators, which are like tiny liquid crystal displays. LCDs. Position between the light source and the lens. Patterns of light and dark on the first modular effectively turn it into yada 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 scientific stuff. Uh, So check it out. It's very neat. I personally am excited for this because I am... 3D glasses don't really bother me that much anymore, but... I think people would make better use of 3D technology if you did have this holographic technology because it seems like you would have to get it down to a freaking science and know what you're doing. And I would I would think at least it would have to look good for it to work. I would agree. What do you got for us, Matt? <laughs> All right, let's see here. Here's another little fun one, an easy one, coming to us from avclub.com, courtesy of Sean O'Neill. Adam Sandler confirms that his movies are just paid vacations. Yes, ladies and gentlemen, in a segment that confirmed what many reviewers have long presumed and blatantly stated, Adam Sandler appeared on Jimmy Kimmel Live last night. Uh, And I'm sorry, I apologize. This is coming to us from May 22nd, 2014. uh, And today, of course, is May 29th. So this is a week old, but whatever. That means you can YouTube this shit, too. Yay! Uh, Adam Sandler appeared on Jimmy Kimmel Live where Kimmel asked him flat out whether his movies are just flimsy excuses for paid vacations. Quote, Yes! End quote, Sandler replied enthusiastically, secure in the knowledge that it absolutely doesn't matter. If he admits, point blank, that he chooses his projects based on whether they include a trip to some luxury destination, because they are Adam Sandler movies for Adam Sandler audiences. Quote, I have done that since 51st Dates. It was written in another place. I said, imagine if we did it in Hawaii, how great that movie would be. And they said, yeah, that's a very artistic idea. I've been doing that ever since. End quote. (laughs) Um, Just terrible. I mean, his movies have been getting steadily worse. Yeah. Over the years. And, and Blended is now his lead... Like, it has the worst opening of any Adam Sandler movie, apparently. And yet, it won't be the last Adam Sandler movie. No. I, I, I You know what? I foresee, perhaps, maybe a sequel to Going Overboard. Which is, like, one of the worst rated movies of all time. And... That was, like, his first movie, right? It's like... Yeah, it was, like, his first movie Yeah, ever. Yeah, I've never seen it. I... Tried to watch it once. Yeah. A buddy of mine, an old roommate of mine, actually had it um, on DVD or something. And so I was like, okay, I'll give it a shot. So I put it in. I think I made it like 12 minutes. And I just couldn't. I stopped. I could not get through it. Um, so, yeah. So, so maybe we'll get one of those. And then that'll be the end. And there will be no more Adam Sandler movies. Because he had his heyday. And his movies, the golden movies... You know, Happy Gilmore, uh, Billy Madison, Billy Madison. You know the the 
Oh, and he's got one Wedding other one. Singer. Yeah, yeah. So, Water yeah. Boy. Water Boy. And then, of course, Fifty First Dates, right? I mean, there's tons of good movies out there. He's got plenty of good stuff to choose from. Let it go. Well, maybe he wants to... Dis- he's probably, probably going to start doing a sequel phase where he starts doing sequels to all of those golden movies. <laughs> I hope not. I swear to God, I hope not. What do you got, sir? All right, so a little bit of uh, information on Bill Murray. Actually, old information on Bill Murray. Uh, this is based on something that came about a couple years ago. And I came across this from a buddy of mine named Harry... Harry Perales, this is a shout-out to you. He uh, had this up on Facebook, and I looked at it, and I thought, this is very interesting. Um, Before I get to the Reddit discussion, I will provide the background with this old article, two-years-old article from page6.com, and it's entitled, Bill Murray calls Kelly Lynch's husband every time Roadhouse sex scene airs. (laughs) I'm... I remember this on Reddit. Um, (laughs) And I'll just read a little bit of this. They say that the 1989 action hit Roadhouse still makes the rounds on TV quite often, be it on AMC or one of the premium cable channels. And that is bad news for one of the movie's stars, Kelly Lynch, and worse news for her her husband, writer-producer Mitch Glazer. Lynch, who played the love interest of Patrick Swayze in the film, revealed that every time the movie pops up on cable that Bill Murray or one of his brothers calls Glazer. By the way, speaking of Bill Murray, every time Roadhouse is on and he or one of his idiot brothers are watching TV, they're always watching TV, one of them calls my husband and says, in a reasonable approximation of Carl Spackler, Murray's character in Caddyshack, Kelly's having sex with Patrick Swayze right now. They're doing it. He's throwing her against the rocks. Lynch said in an interview with AVClub.com to promote her star sh- to promote her star show Magic City. At this point in the a- uh, in the AV Club interview, Glazer overhears what Lynch is talking about and relays a story to his wife. Mitch was just walking out the door to the set, and he said that Bill once called him from Russia, Lynch54 said. Fortunately for Lynch and Glazer, Roadhouse is not set to air in the next couple of weeks, according to TVGuy.com, but it will return to the listing soon. I dread it. If I know it's coming on, and I can tell when it's coming on, because it blows up on Twitter when it is, I'm just like, oh my god, and god help me when AMC's doing the Roadhouse Marathon, because I know the phone is just going to keep ringing. It doesn't matter if it's 2 or 3 in the morning. Hi, Kelly's having sex with Patrick Swayze right now, Lynch <laughs> said. And I came across the, you know, the Reddit thing, and it's a post about it, and it's just, it's Reddit. All these comments... And they're they're pretty entertaining to to look at. So check it out if you have time, because uh, you get a lot of these one word comments like splooge, <laughs> faux show, and and your blood blood queef sex sex one some fook question mark. And somebody else responds, whatever happened to blood queef for blood queef's sake? <laughs> Can I PM you a blood queef for oral at McDonald's? <laughs> Dude, that always works. So, yeah, fun stuff like that, so check it out. Check it out. 
Was the was the next comment after that? I'm loving it. Just no, <laughs> blood surprisingly queef. no. I'm loving it. But uh, <clears throat> right on. All right. Well, let's see here. Oh, I'm trying to choose from because we're gonna have to shut this down here pretty quick. All right. I've got two more that I can do very very fast. Um, first, because it refuses to die from BoxOfficeMojo.com. There is a new top five in the all-time worldwide grosses of movies. Number one is still Avatar. Number two is still Titanic. Number three is Marvel's The Avengers. Number four is still Harry Potter and the Deathly Hallows Part 2. Number five used to be Iron Man 3, but is now Frozen. It just will not fucking quit. And I'm still surprised it's only number five. It's at 1.2 billion dollars uh, specifically 1 billion 219.3 million dollars can you say that like dr evil 1 billion 219.3 million dollars <laughs> well hang on to dun 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 oh yeah you know i had to do the little pinky curl next to the lip there yeah that's unreal, dude. It's also yeah. now the highest grossing movie of 2013. It'll just never... It will just <laughs> never die. Never. And I found out also yesterday that apparently within 10 minutes of the Magic Kingdom opening every day in Walt Disney World, the wait to meet Anna and Elsa uh, yeah. is 300 minutes. 300 minutes? Yes, within... 10 minutes of it opening. It's like they just keep it stock at 300 minutes. It will now be five hours to wait for a picture. How many... <laughs> you have to get a season pass just to do that, you know? <laughs> just, uh, yeah. Yeah, so. All right, what do you got, sir? Uh, oh, I have time for another one? Okay. I don't know. I figured, yeah, well, we've kind of just thrown caution to the wind here. We had a 15-minute, 15, 15, 16-minute opening segment when usually they're less than 10 uh, yeah. Uh, okay, this is interesting. Viggo Mortensen has some serious problems with the second and third Lord of the Rings movies. Article from CinemaBlend.com, written by Mac Rodden. And I, I'll tell you a little bit what he says, and it and it makes it makes sense. And I kind of I kind of I kind of agree with him. Uh, he had an honest interview with the Telegraph, and this is what he said. Uh, Peter was always a geek in terms of technology, but once he had the means to do it and the evolution of the technology really took off, he never looked back. In the first movie, yes, there's Rivendell and Mordor, and there's sort of an organic quality to it. Actors acting with each other in real landscapes, it's grittier. The second movie already started ballooning, for my taste, and then by the third one there's a lot of special effects. It was grandiose and all that, but whatever was subtle or subtle in the first movie gradually got lost in the second and third. Now, with The Hobbit 1 and 2, it's like that to the power of 10. In quotes. Totally agree. Yeah. Totally agree. And more so with The Hobbit movies. And even Ian McKellen came out and said, I think he, he broke down on set because. You just couldn't believe. Like, oh yeah, with the talk, the pictures that blinked. Yeah, yeah. You only, yeah. You only had portraits, and they would blink to tell him who was talking. And yeah, yeah. Ah, it's, it's is crazy. Not why I became an actor. Yeah, yeah and I, I a lot of people didn't really care for the first Lord of the Rings movie, 
or a lot of people critically, you know, attacked it, I guess. I, I love it because exactly what he said. It's it's more real, you know, there's not a ton of blue screens. Like when they go into a village or whatever, it's they're actually in a village, you know. I mean it's a set, but you can see the actual landscapes and there's not a lot of monsters, the orcs or you know, real people with makeup and fake sure. shit on, you know? Right. And, and I like that. Absolutely. So Here's to the last Hobbit movie, and we'll see how that goes. (laughs) Indeed, indeed. Okay, well, I'm going to go ahead and finish with this, because um, the rest of the stuff I know uh, is topical and can wait. From thehollywoodreporter.com, courtesy of Kim Masters, Fast and Furious 7 insurance claim could reach record-breaking $50 million. $50 million. Universal facing, uh, I'm sorry, Universal using face replacement technology and the late Paul Walker's brothers to finish the film is in a negotiation to get reimbursed as the costs soar past $250 million. Yeah. Basically, it comes down to this. You have to have insurance to get films made because there are rare events, just like what happened with Paul Walker, when people when people die. And because of the significant amount of investment that goes in just to get cameras rolling, they need to be able to reimburse costs, especially in the worst-case scenario when they have to scrap the whole movie. Well, after being shut down uh, for so long, which, again, people are paid and contracted through certain times even after shooting has begun, despite when bad things happen to good people. Which means they're having to extend pay to people like Vin Diesel and other stars of the movie because they have to keep them on retainer and then bring them back months later to come finish scenes and rework stuff, which causes reshoots. Then, of course, with people like when you know Paul Walker passed away, they had to figure out how to do all this stuff. So the... Budget went over two hundred million. Is now looking at two hundred fifty million dollars. These most recent fifty million dollars is all the technological stuff that they're having to do to get Paul Walker replaced. And if they are successful in negotiating this payout, it will be the largest insurance payout on a movie ever. Um, the question is, and they don't ask it in the article, but I'm asking it: Is it worth it? What do you think, Tim? Is it worth it to drop a quarter of a billion dollars? Specifically, the extra $50 million, The months yeah. that have gone on in, you know, where they had to halt production. I think, and- I think it depends. It depends on the length of production and who's in it. Like, if you're doing a movie with, like, uh, a movie starring Christopher Plummer, Max von Snell... And uh, and 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 Count Dooku, Christopher Lee, Christopher Lee. You might want to take some insurance out. Like, if, <laughs> like if the if the movie if the, if the filming is going to take is going to span, you know, a year or so. That's kind of, that might be a good thing to do. But I think if it's it's stuff with like Paul Walker, you know, I, I think that stuff it just. I mean, it was a freak accident. You know, it wasn't a health issue. It was a freak accident. And how how often does that happen? True, but I mean, but there and again, 
I, I just don't know. I think it would have been smarter to either rewrite the movie without him, to write him out, to finish, you know, to, to do the stuff, because they had already finished virtually everything they needed to finish. Right. And then just go ahead and get the movie out so that you don't lose it all. But at the same time, certain movies have been completely shelved when people have died. I know there was one, uh, like, with Marilyn Monroe and everything. When she passed away, they shelved the movie she was working on. Certain movies just... You know, you gotta you gotta take the hit, but yeah, I don't know. It's crazy. I guess I guess. Do, do, do you think that you will be now more inclined to see Fast and Furious Seven as a result of all this extra hoopla than you would have been previously? Um. Well, I need to go back and watch Fast and the Furious two through six. I I am current up through five. I'm up through Fast Five. I have not seen six yet. Are they? Is it worth watching? Are they? Are they good? They actually do get better. Do? I was really okay. impressed. The That's second was one heard. was kind of like, huh. The third one, I, well, I like Tokyo Drift. Most people think it's the weakest of the series, but I yeah. personally really like Tokyo Drift. And then four, I was impressed. And then five, I could not, I could not believe it was actually good. I was like, okay, cool. So I was kind of looking forward to six, but then, you know, for me, I'm fine with catching them on DVD. I don't need to go to the theater. To yeah, see them, yeah. So. Uh, whatever, but yeah. All right, cool. Well, that's the end of my news. Uh, did you want to go ahead and? Close I'm, it I'm off? good for next week. For, um, for the yeah, sake I'm... of our listeners. Ooh, <laughs> listeners! Instead of our listener. Yes. <clears throat> all right. So yes. Okay. So for all of you listener, we're gonna go ahead and shut down the news, and now we're going to have discussions with Matt and Tim. This week on discussions with Matt and Tim. We will be discussing the 1978 Oscars, going over all of the nominees and the winner of Best Picture for that year. The movies, of course, coming from 1977, the year that Matt was born. And now, discussions with Matt and Tim. All right. This was back when they had a reasonable number of movies, in, in my opinion, <laughs> for nominations they had five nominees uh the nominees were annie hall the goodbye girl julia star wars and the turning point annie hall was the eventual winner uh the only uh, I, the only movie i needed to go back and watch on this one was the turning point that was the only one that i had not seen uh as it is now i'm going to say that and we're not going to sit here and go over all the plot points of uh, the, of all five movies here. Um, but I'm going to just go out on a limb and say that um, Tim is probably confident and, and glad of the winner's choice in Annie Hall because that's his favorite Woody Allen movie. Yeah, well, that's definitely one of my favorites. Yeah, it, it's out of... I honestly think out of all of these, other than... I think the obvious Star Wars would have been probably the next best thing to choose. Personally, it it holds up with the comedy and the romance and the kind of the 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 sadness with the character throughout without it feeling cheesy. And I think other than Star Wars, this is the only one that really holds up today. I would have to say that my favorite of the era is probably the Goodbye Girl. Now, that's looking at it from the prism of 1977. 
looking right. at movies how the that was my personal favorite. And that's of course based on Neil Simon play, and Neil Simon was big in the seventies and getting lots of stuff. Especially my favorite Neil Simon, Murder by Death, mm-hmm. um, you know, just fantastic. So I do enjoy the story that the Goodbye Girl tells, especially with Richard Dreyfus, and I really like the I. The struggling actor side of it and everything. It's, it's funny. It's touching. So I think for of the day that it is the best. The turning point was, it's, is a story about ballerinas, basically, and dance studios and love triangles and what have you. And Tim and I were talking about it a little bit beforehand. And Tim made a very good point when he said, this is why dancers don't make good actors. And, the, and it's a fine line because he mentioned with... Uh, Black Swan. Thank you, Black Swan. Yeah. That people were upset that they used actresses instead of dancers. And the thing is, is that it's more easy, or more easy, it is easier to convince the movie-going public of a profession, like a dancer, being acted out by actors than it is vice versa. Because while dancers can certainly own and can command a stage in the theater environment, that is done artistically through the expression of dance, which is what makes them amazing dancers and, and makes ballet so awesome. That does not translate to a movie. Now, that's not to say that you can't watch a film of a ballet or whatever. What I'm saying is, is that when you come off the stage, what makes you a good dancer and what makes you amazing in the theater of dance and ballet does not necessarily mean you will then be a good actor or actress. And it is painfully obvious. Yeah. <laughs> In the yeah. very point. Yeah, the, 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 the main girl, the main dancing girl, and I, I mean, I didn't really care to look it up, but I don't know, maybe Matt's doing that right now. I don't know. Uh, let's see here. Uh, Leslie Brown. Yes. Has yeah. she done it? Can you see if she's... Because I just want to confirm to see if, if she's actually done other other work before I... Let's see here. Um, she appeared... Uh, her first one was The Turning Point. She then did Nijinsky in 1980 and Dancers in 1987. Uh, all of them directed by Herbert Ross, her godfather. So oh. I guess we know how we land the roles <laughs> with you are Leslie Brown. Yeah, she just has this very like stoic, kind of like cardboard uh, expression on her face. Unless she's crying, then you might see a tear... And it's 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 very obvious, like Matt was saying. But not only just like the best pictures were very interesting, but you look at who was nominated for best actor, best supporting actor, actress. Who won for best supporting actress uh, was Vanessa Redgrave from the film Julia, which Julia got a lot of criticism because of a lot of people were upset from the point of view of the movie. They felt that the movie should have been from Vanessa Redgraves' point of view and not from um, Jane Fonda's point of view. Right. And I I thoroughly enjoyed the movie. And the first time I watched it was this past week. And I thoroughly enjoyed it. It was pretty... T- it was a, Honestly, it was a... Being it from her point of view... Not the uh, not the uh, the English woman who's who's trying to stop the Nazis and free the Jews and help help those people out. Right, right, right. That right. would have been yeah. a more probably a more so engaging and exciting type of movie. But from Jane Fonda's point of view, being the famous friend who's 
kind of risking her life sitting on a train to smuggle in some cash into Berlin. Right. You know, it's still pretty interesting because that's not necessarily the whole movie. There's stuff with her and her lover, Dashiell Hammett, played by uh, Jason Robards, who Jason Robards... One, received the Best Supporting Actor Oscar, even though he only has a few scenes in the movie. Though they are good, personally, I thought Alec Guinness from Star Wars was better. I think, okay, I gotta say, with the movie Julia, Julia was controversial for a, for a good number of reasons. I thought it was kind of the weakest of the uh, of the films, but not for the controversial stuff, and definitely not from the perspective point of view. I, I agree with you. I think the perspective was fine. Yeah. I just the way that the movie ends really leaves. It's more or less she's kind of like she's disowned. Yeah. More and uh, I'm sorry. The movie's 37 years old. Get over it. You should you should have seen it by now. <laughs> um, she and, and it really just kind of. Almost, what gets me is that almost the whole movie is for nothing. Yeah. Because you go on this journey with her, and then it ultimately just kind of ends up, from her perspective, truly just kind of being for naught. Yeah. And yet the performances that were given, I mean, regardless of what people in today's world, or even yesterday's world, think of Jane Fonda's politics or whatever... The woman could act. I mean, oh, definitely. She, I mean, yeah. she was a good actress. There's yeah. a reason why she was getting the work that she was getting, and it wasn't because of exercise videos. I, you know, <laughs> um, so she. I mean, but I gotta say, I really think that despite how small the performance was, I really think Robarts did deserve the win on this one. And and the reason why is because it goes all the way back to your initial thing. You say that you're glad that Annie Hall won, but you think that the only thing that really could have stood up the test of time was Star Wars. I gotta disagree. I mean, Star Wars, even as... Oh, wait, 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 hang on. You thought I said what? No, 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 I, no I said, no, I thought Annie Hall and Star Wars both stood the test of time. Correct. And I, yeah. and what I'm saying is, is that I agree with you on Annie Hall, but I disagree with oh, you on Star, Star Wars. Wars. Yeah. Okay, gotcha. I don't think Star Wars stands up as well. Um, I think that Star Wars was only nominated due to how unbelievably groundbreaking the special effects were. And the way it told the story that it told. The story itself is not that strong of a story. And that's why most people gravitate towards Empire Strikes Back as being the best. The younger kids like me, I think Return of the Jedi is the best. Whatever people, mm-hmm. you know, to not to digress. Annie Hall, on the other hand, is totally classic. And oh, yeah. everything, the dialogue, relationships, that's the one thing about a truly good relationship movie is that it goes to the heart of a relationship. And relationships, despite technology, despite time, don't change. The dynamics that make relationships happen don't change. And while Alec Guinness was good, I mean, use the polls, Luke, is not as strong of a performance as... Jason Robards was, despite True. the despite the lack of screen time. Yeah, and then you look at who else is nominated. The uh, Maximilian Schell from Julia, who had um, again a very small role, and then uh, Mikhail Baryshnikov from The Turning Point. Yeah, another. What the bizarre... hell was that? Well, and that was also with uh, also from the Turning Point because uh, Leslie Brown also got nominated as a Best Supporting Actress. I yeah, I couldn't believe yeah. that either. And, uh, yeah, and honestly, other than uh, 
yeah, Quinn, the little girl, Quinn Cummings, was really good in oh, yeah. The Goodbye Girl. But the actress, going back to The Goodbye uh, Girl real quick, is that, uh, 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 what's his name? Uh, uh, Richard Dreyfus got Best Actor for The Goodbye Girl. Right. I thought his performance in Close Encounters, which I thought Close Encounters got snubbed, and the only re- I honestly think the only reason why it didn't get nominated for Best Picture it's because they didn't want two sci-fi movies nominated for Best Picture. I, because it was it was kind of, I mean, there was still like the classic, you know, old farts that were sort of running things, and I think that's why we kind of have movies like The Turning Point. You know, old it's old-fashioned. Julia is such an old-fashioned movie as well. True, like with the whole setup. Though, I mean, it's it's definitely far superior than The Turning Point. I think it's still an old-fashioned movie with a little with some bite to it but i thought richard dreyfuss's performance in uh close encounters was a better dramatic performance granted in the goodbye girl he is absolutely hysterical and i totally feel for the guy i mean his uh on an emotional level i thought his performance in the goodbye girl was definitely really good as well and so when it comes to the two thinking about it now it's definitely on preference on the movies since I think Close Encounters is the better movie of the two, only because The Goodbye Girl, and with Neil Simon, depending on what Neil Simon show you're watching, the dialogue, Neil Simon's dialogue, can kind of get a little bit tiring after right, a while. Right, it drags, yeah. Yeah, and it's kind of like the same repetitive, like, snappy, smart lines. Right. And this is that's kind of like how I felt with The Goodbye Girl. And I thought the little girl, Quinn Cummings, who was, I think, one of my favorite young girl characters in, in, in a show... And Richard Dreyfus, those two were the only ones that I can think of were holding the show together, the, the entire, you know, the, the pacing of it together. Uh, everything from his gay uh, Richard III, <laughs> which I read a great uh, Roger Ebert review where he said that he didn't, he gave it, I think, two and a half or three stars when it came out, but he said the great thing about The Goodbye Girl is Richard Dreyfuss, Richard III, and he compared it to the funniest take on Shakespeare and uh, of a stage show since Mel Brooks is the producers with Springtime for Hitler. Right. And it's like, oh, that's hilarious. You know, they, I mean, just the humor is so funny, and that's the type of humor that I love. But the lead actress, uh, uh, Marsha Mason, who is nominated for Best Actress, mm-hmm. I did not care for her whatsoever and ultimately that's what bothered me about the movie not the writing becoming a little bit tiresome but i did not give a crap about her character and yeah that's what i, I guess for me the okay the relationship is supposed to happen more or less between richard dreyfus and marcia mason's characters yeah uh, yet because of the strength of richard dreyfus and quinn cummings uh I forgave everything else. I found that Goodbye Girl was awesome, which is, again, why I say it's my favorite movie for the period. Right. I still say Annie Hall. But I think, honestly, even comparing the fact that Close Encounters is a better movie than The Goodbye Girl, which it is, mm-hmm. um, although if I had to drop one, I'd probably drop Turning Point um, and then put Close, Close Encounters, Encounters in there. Yeah. I think that... It was that Star Wars was more of a technical breakthrough than Close Encounters. And and I think that the only reason it got the nod 
in the first place was based on its technical merits. Because that's where it won the Oscars, that it won. Yeah. Uh, and, I, and I don't think it was... I would only say that I don't really think it was necessarily the we don't want two sci-fi pictures in the in the running. It's kind of like Avatar Syndrome or Titanic Syndrome, mm-hmm. where they would like to honor the technical achievement, but it's not gonna be it's not gonna win. Right. And right. I think that's where Star Wars was in. I don't think it. I, I just really think that there was no stopping Star Wars in terms of its technology. You know what would have been worse. I think what movie that they I could have told if it was a younger uh, maybe maybe I think more so now if these movies came out now or if we had this kind of mindset with movies and the people that are within the academy and all that I'm pretty sure they would have put Saturday Night Fever somewhere in like best <laughs> actor you know best supporting actress but uh, you know well, best that's picture. John Travolta got the uh, nomination there so I guess there was that so. Oh, he did. Oh, he did. Yeah, that's right. He got I totally nominated. didn't realize that. And I'm looking at it right here. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's a good movie to uh, review for Did It Age Well? Because I'll tell well, you right now. we can do that next time around for sure. It. Okay. <laughs> we can do, well, I mean, well, okay, we got, uh, uh, spoiler alert, we got a, we, we're, we've got uh, Spies Like Us coming here pretty soon. But yeah, for the next, uh, the next one ahead, we definitely have to do Saturday Night Fever. Um, all right. Well, then. So then, are we agreed that we're both glad that Annie Hall got Best Picture based on the nominations of yes. available? Yes. Okay. Yeah. yeah. And that we both can say that Annie Hall stands up today. And all right. Well, there you have it, folks. So of the nominees, Annie Hall, The Goodbye Girl, Julia, Star Wars, and The Turning Point, Annie Hall did win, and we are glad Annie Hall won. And Annie Hall is definitely. Uh, the best of those five and has aged the best, holds up the best, um, then there you go. But I would definitely say check out The Goodbye Girl. Just to, you know, yeah, to it's, check it it's out. definitely entertaining. Yeah, definitely entertaining. Check out, so. Outstanding. Okay. Well, that concludes yet another episode of Discussions with Matt and Tim. Next time... We will be having Did It Age Well, which will feature the 1985 comedy Spies Like Us, starring Dan Aykroyd and Chevy Chase. Thanks again for listening to Discussions with Matt and Tim. All right, which leads us to... Are you ready? Oh, yes. We're good? Yes. I, I, I was just kind of like staring at John Travolta <laughs> in Saturday Night Fever. I'm nice. <laughs> All right. Well, then here we go, folks. It is the movie. <laughs> The movies, the movies. All right, so we had 2012's Much Ado About Nothing, which was the Joss Whedon remake. We had uh, You Kill Me, uh, which is a 2007 comedy. And then, of course, what just released, X-Men Days of Future Past. Where do you want to start, sir? Where do you want to start? Let's start off with the uh, the older movie, You Kill Me. All right, You Kill Me, 2007 comedy film. 
And this one stars Ben Kingsley, Luke Wilson, Tia Leone, and, oh, of course, Dennis Farina. Oh, yeah, that's right. We like Dennis Farina. Bill Pullman's in there as well. And this is about a, this kind of a quirky comedy about an alcoholic hitman who has to, who blows a job and then has, goes to San Francisco? Yes. Yes. San Francisco to, quote, clean up his act, and then... Um, has some misadventures there, but then kind of leads to him more or less taking taking his life back. In a very funny way, I think. I don't, I don't, it's it's very interesting to watch. Yeah, I I don't know. For me, like it was funny. Yeah, but it was more chuckle worthy. Right. I I didn't really find anything just explosively funny about it. Uh, the premise was definitely unique. It was very interesting. Uh, what was the one that we just watched uh, a few weeks ago with uh, Christopher Walken and Al Pacino? Uh, uh, stand-up guys. Yeah, stand-up guys. Yeah. It kind of had that quirky yeah. uh, premise vibe to it that, that I thought would be good. And yet, despite... Some pretty good performances. I mean, you, you, you kind of can't not have good performances based on the actors yeah. and actresses here. I mean, but it just never really seemed to get off the ground. Is that... Yeah, I think... I, well, I think my... I like the movie quite a bit. And I think the, the main reason why is because every single performance in the movie I thought was really fun to watch. I thought Bill Pullman... Out of nowhere plays a side character, but he is the biggest asshole to the guy, <laughs> you know. But he does it so freaking well, you know. The whole his look, the disgruntled, right? You know, real estate or you know, moonlighting as a real estate guy, and uh, uh, Owen Wilson being the gay, uh, trying to be his sponsor when he goes to AA, right? You know, it's just I, I don't know. It's mainly like the goofy reactions that he has when. Stuff is said during the AA meetings, which probably shouldn't be said. And I like how 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 Frank uh, how Frank uh, 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 Ben Kingsley's character is right. with things. You know, he's he's you on you can honestly say Falenchik. yeah that he's trying to be a straight guy and he wants to be, and when he does have his slip ups, he kind of has a logical reason you know to have a slip up. But then right. once he does it, he he feels bad about it. But it's not like an obvious. He's obviously not like tearing himself up. But I don't know. It's really hard for me to explain. But it's really. I thought it was really fun to watch. Well, I mean, again, but it's one of those things where everybody does a good job. And I mean, I saw a, uh, at least a year, if not two years ago, the the most recent uh, Torchwood series that they had, miniseries, oh. uh, Children of Men or something like that. I can't remember. Miracle Day. Mir- yeah, Miracle Day. Thank you. And Bill Pullman. Yeah. plays like one of the chief bad guys yeah. for that. And it was at that point that I was like, oh my god, what an amazing, you know, so I'm looking at him here and he's just kind of playing a funny version of that. Uh, it, oh, really? It, yeah. Okay. I mean, he, he's a spectacular, spectacularly creepy bad guy in, uh, in Miracle Day. Oh my god, it's just, yeah. So here he's playing, here he's just being an asshole. Yeah. But uh, it's just kind of the, like the extremely funny version of, of that. So again, but all of the performances are really well done, 
And they, I mean, and you would not expect any less, especially uh, we're Dennis Farina fans. I personally, I enjoy Tia Leone's work. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I've, I like Bill Pullman. I'm sorry, I'm a sucker. I liked him ever since While You Were Sleeping. Just, you know, Aww, shoot me. I, you know, what cute. can you say? I mean, when he drops uh. the ring into the subway at the end. Oh. All right. So, seriously, though. And then Luke Wilson, I mean, yeah. yeah. Also, everybody is, does a really good job. Yeah. The problem, I guess, that I have would have to be with the director, with John Dahl, is that he's got everyone doing a fantastic job. And yes, the characters are great. I, I, I cannot argue the acting or the uh, of that. The problem is, is that it never really seems to come together. I don't... The, the, the situation should be... The situation... Yeah, does effectively drive the whole plot. the The whole premise is a very interesting premise. the The characters are all well done and they're excellently acted, um, and so they do provide like chuckle worthy things. But I don't ever find anything that's funny throughout. It's like it never comes together for me. Yeah, and so I don't know. I kind of come on this one with. You come all over this one? Yeah, I come all over this one. You're the one with, you know, hot and sticky and stuff. You know. um. <laughs> well, now that's extra creepy. <laughs> um, no, so, okay, so... I'm going to go... I'm going to split the difference on this one. 2.75. Better than okay. Just not quite liked it. And I think that... Honestly, this would be one for our listeners... Uh, my air quotes over here... Uh, that I would like to get more of an opinion on. I would really like additional feedback. We ought to, we ought to do that. We ought to get, like, uh, you know, one of your friends or one of my friends to watch a movie that we would like to have an opinion on and have them record, like, a little five-minute... Quite frankly, at this point, we would like anybody with any opinion on anything, for any reason, to just <laughs> let us know. That's fine. Please, go ahead. I don't care. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, I mean, seriously, I, I mean, because for me... I really feel like on a technical level, and by technical I mean the acting and the directing of the individual characters, I just really feel like he, like, like John Dahl never really puts the story together for yeah. me. So for me, I land in between okay and I liked it. So I'm going to say 2.75. I gave it I gave it four stars because I enjoyed the movie that much. Sure. But there was definitely... In what Matt was saying, where an issue that rely or uh, was with the writing and the directing, and with me, it feels like they were trying to make a what can I compare it to? Where you have the badass hitman, and then he happens to get a girlfriend, and then all of a sudden she becomes a badass hitman as well. You know? It, okay. How about this? Do you think would would it be fair to compare this as a combination of? Okay, uh, the professional and lock, stock, and two smoking barrels. Um, more on well, more on lock, stock, and less, a little bit less on Leon, the professional, because I think with Leon you would expect there to be more of a more action because there's no action in this. Well, movie no, I mean I was it's thinking about the relationship movie. aspect. Uh, oh yeah, of, yeah, of yeah, yeah, yeah. I think Not, yeah, and, a little bit. Don't don't. If you haven't seen The Professional, there's no funny business because, you know, Natalie Portman's only like 12. Right, yeah. <laughs> but, I mean, just you see that kind of side of it with that, yeah. Yeah. But it's definitely interesting. It's definitely interesting. Right on. And Ben Kingsley continues to do good work. This is true. And and, and bad work. 
But even his bad work <laughs> is still good work, which is weird. <clears throat> that takes a special kind of someone. Special kind of someone. Yeah. Episode name. <laughs> <laughs> Nice. All right, where do you want to go there, sir? We got Much Ado About Nothing and then X-Men Days of Future Past. Uh, let's go with Much Ado. All righty, ladies and gentlemen. 2012's Much Ado About Nothing, which, of course, is directed by Joss Whedon and stars most of Joss Whedon's friends. Um, <laughs> what? It does. In, in his house. <laughs> in his house. It yeah. really and truly does. I mean, yeah. you know, um, it's really good to see people like Nathan Fillion doing... <laughs> uh, D- doing uh, Shakespeare. Berry? Yeah, he's Dogberry. Yeah. Um, all right, so <clears throat> I wasn't sure how well I was going to go into this movie. Not yeah. because I don't like Shakespeare, but as we, w- this is really only the second real Shakespeare movie we've done. We did Richard III with Ian McKellen and Robert Downey Jr. and everything back when we, way back when we first started doing this thing like three years ago or whatever yeah yeah it'll, yeah it'll be three years next month yeah i think so yeah so uh i'm not so so we neither one of us have any aversion to shakespeare at all so that's fine but i really just wasn't sure it's so hard to properly do things in a modern way right when you're trying to approach shakespeare and so I applaud Joss Whedon automatically for the effort. I just really wasn't sure where to go, where where he was going to go with it. The movie starts off the first few, uh, first for me, just first two or three minutes starts off awkward, and I think that's to be expected because again, with the modern setting, you've got to try and find a way to find your footing in this. Uh, for those who are not familiar, this is. Uh, based on William Shakespeare's play of the same name, that is uh, his uh, considered his greatest comedy. Uh, there is no death, there is no tragedy. As a matter of fact, you get multiple weddings out of this thing. You've got the impetus of the plot is a, a young couple in love who are looking to get married together, but then through this drive two people who claim to hate each other to find and... And proclaim their love for one another. Um, Amy Acker, right? That's who plays. Uh, what's her Beatrice. Name? Beatrice. Thank you. Yeah. Um, there we go. Yeah. Uh, Amy Acker does a fantastic job. She is definitely heart and soul of this whole movie. Uh, Alex Denisoff plays. Um, no, I'm sorry. Where are you? Never be rude to an Arab <laughs> An Israeli or a Jew too Oh my god Sit on my face and tell me that you love me I'll sit on your yeah. face and tell you I love you too I want to hear you moralize no, I was right. Okay, I was like screwing up. For some reason, I didn't think it was Benedict. I'm like trying to look up Benedict. Uh, all right, so Alex, uh, Alexis uh, Denisoff is playing Benedict, and they are kind of the 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 jaded lovers who are the ones who are actually supposed to be driven to fall in love. They're the key players, um, but it wraps around a different 
love story. Now, we were trying to figure out, we were trying to talk about Alex Denisov's uh, portrayal. I think I liked it a little bit more than you did, but I definitely have to agree with you on the drawbacks of the character. Yeah, I like... Okay, so I was kind of comparing this movie. It's hard not to compare this movie to a Ken- the Kenneth Branagh version because he has done a lot of Shakespeare movies and as well. He does as them well. He does them fucking amazingly. He too. does. He does. And the one I'm <clears throat> I'm comparing it to is from the early '90s. Uh, Emma Thompson was Beatrice. Kenneth Branagh was Benedict. Um, uh, uh, um, uh, Keanu Reeves was the bad guy in it. <laughs> you know, uh, Denzel Washington was in it as well. Sure. And uh, it was really good, and I loved what I told him what I really like about it, and I was Leonardo. I was Clark Gregg's character uh, right. in, whenever I was in the play. Is what I love about it is that you have Beatrice and Benedict. They're both kind of, in their way, self-absorbed people, you know? They're, they're, they're the macho, you know? They're, they are macho. But then when love is introduced and they find out that you know, or they're tricked into thinking that they love each other, or like one person loves them. They just completely fall apart, and be, they become so mushy. And that's where the hilarity lies, because you go from, "Oh, I will not love this," and they'll insult the people, you know, right in front of them. And so they're sure. speaking horribly of them. But when they find out that person loves them, it's like, "This is love. I can just scream it. I can shout it. I can yell it out because I just can't keep this, you know, built up inside of me." And that's why one of the reasons why I love this this play. But with Joss Whedon's Much Do About Nothing, the actress who plays Beatrice, as I told Matt, did it wonderfully. Right. You know, and she is leveled. What I wrote down in my notes, she is fantastic and leveled <laughs> uh, in her performance. But with his portrayal of, of Benedict, it was more, I, I don't want to say shallow, because it definitely gets better as the play moves on. But there's not the but there's not that contrast of the macho-ness, the macho asshole, bigoted asshole or whatever, right. and the uh, and the mushy gushy in love guy where there is that one part of the movie where he's outside and he goes to the altar where Claudio and uh, and Hero are going to be getting married and then you know he he shouts out that I and I get to scream. I love her! And then you hear the echo, you know, as it goes out. There was not, to me at least, there was not the contrast nor the build-up leading up to that. And it could be because they shot this movie in 12 days, or maybe they were going for a different interpretation that I didn't catch. Okay, so that is where I, that's where we disagree, because I think that's part of the modernization. Okay? Now, you also have to remember that um, they are also consolidating different roles and stuff like that and all and a lot of the roles that got consolidated also affect the um, the, the interplay that can happen between uh, Beatrice and Benedict. Now, on top of that, with the modern setting, they are playing and I think it just is easier not so much for Beatrice, but I just think with the actress with with Amy Acker, her sensibilities it just becomes easier for her to modernize because someone in her position 400 years ago would have looked strikingly different yeah to what we see today and expect an almost a normal self-assured sophisticated woman mm-hmm. 
the overbearing switch that we see even as recent as you know 20 years ago with Kenneth Branagh's performance and again the, what made it so awesome and hilarious with the I'm such a fucking badass to oh my god you love these movies so much <laughs> is hilarious but 20 years old and plays to the sensibilities that Shakespeare wrote 400 years ago right so what we have with Ale- uh, Alexis Denisov's portrayal of Benedict is a much more prick as we would see them today and he comes off that way it's just like what I was saying at the beginning of the movie uh, when he's commenting on uh, 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 not Claudio uh, the girl shit hero hero thank you and he's like you know even without my spectacles I would know that she is you know that she is not one include you know when he's referring to her beauty and basically saying look dude she's a dog but if you like her go right on ahead yeah it's those those were the ones that were making me laugh at the beginning yeah. because I mean you can totally tell just how much of a dick he really is and it, but it's because that's how we view jerks today. And maybe it's because jerks today are so shallow. I have a hard time picking up on that and it kind of runs together. I don't know. And that well I think and so that's why it's a much more subtle change for him. Right. Because we're not looking at the grandiose gestures that have been popularized through Shakespeare. Right. Now, I still, while I did, I think, enjoy his performance a little bit more than you did, I still think that it's a valid complaint because it's not that grandiose. So you don't, you yes, you do get the reconciliations and everything yeah. that are supposed to play out in the fourth act. But I just think that I was a little bit more forgiving based on buying into the modern day yeah. premise. Yeah, so, I just wanted that the feeling, because, you know, like if you watch the stage show or... You know, again, the Kenneth Branagh movie, it's just like that feeling of, like, the tension and all of a right. sudden that, the, you know, like, right. you can cut the tension between the two characters with a spoon or whatever. But then when all that is released, you know, the floodgates are open and the emotion comes out and then, oh! <laughs> right. And so, and, yeah, so either way, though, I come away with this movie four stars. I really, yeah. I really enjoyed this movie. It's not a perfect movie, um, but... In terms of, again, being filmed in 12 days, trying to, uh, totally shot in black and white, trying to um, modernize the story with the with the consolidations and stuff that were made, I still think this is definitely really worth watching. I, I really like it. So four stars for me. Yeah, four stars for me also. I think that uh, it, it you will definitely enjoy this if you are already familiar with the show. Correct. So I think... And st- I mean, don't read the whole synopsis of the show, but I would say be familiar with the basic And don't story. be afraid of... Um, oh, good Lord. There is an actual website that will... Oh, No Fear Shakespeare. Yeah, yeah. We don't, be, don't be afraid to pull that up and bring, have it on your tablet. You know, I've got my little 2010, you know, my 2014 note right here, you know. Um, I'm not one who needs it, but my wife does. You know, so if we're doing that kind of stuff, I'm sure to have it ready. Don't be afraid. If you're hearing stuff that you don't understand, pull up No Fear Shakespeare and just read along with it so that you can kind of get an idea. Uh, once you understand how he uses his words, especially if you're a fan of Star Wars, mm-hmm. just think like Yoda. Uh, it's it's not, uh, I must do this. It's, do this. You must. Because it follows the flow and you, and that's what his writing style is. It's giving you iambic pentameter. So don't be afraid to, to 
charge into this stuff and then use the resources that are available. It'll really help you enjoy the movie. Once you get the hang of it, you'll it's it's like it's literally like you know learning a new language or something. As soon as you get that click, you'll be able to enjoy all Shakespeare all the time. And you'll feel smarter. You will. You will. And then you'll sit there and go, oh, I don't understand what they're saying. And you're like, well, how can you not? Oh, my God. You know, so, yeah. yeah. Um, so, awesome. Okay, well, cool. Well, then that's going to leave us with X-Men Days of Future Past. The 2014 movie, of course, that uh, is directed by Brian Singer, who just couldn't leave well enough to fuck alone. Uh, starring Hugh Jackman, James McAvoy, mm. Michael Fassbender. I knew he was going to do this shit. Mm-hmm. He walked away from the X-Men franchise after the second movie so he could go and fuck up Superman. And then he and then when he, you know, sees how fucking bad Last Stand went, he's, you know, like all butthurt. And then of course, granted the mon- the the movie did great business, and I stuck up for it at the time. But I actually went back a month ago and tried to watch Superman Returns again, popped it in. It's really a bad movie. It, it really just sucks. It didn't age well or anything. And it was way too fucking long. And it came out six years ago. <laughs> I know! That's the worst part. So, actually, no, it was like nine years ago. It was like 2005, I thought. Uh, 2006. Okay, yeah. so, yeah. So, uh, you know, seven, eight years ago, whatever. But, um, yeah. So then what does he do as soon as he gets his back? He tries to fix what he fucked up by walking away with Last Stand. And what does he end up doing? He fucks up the whole thing. I swear to you, it's like I told you in that text message. I wish I was in some kind of alternate universe where I am Walter from The Big Lebowski and I have a fucking baseball bat to Brian Singer's car going, This is what happens when you fuck another man's timeline in the ass! Smash and smash this shit up! I, oh my god And I don't even know oh where man. to start I don't know where to start but There's a whole fucking thing You want, I mean, let's see We can talk about Mystique helping a bunch of mutants escape That doesn't make any sense There's no reason to do that um, Having Xavier go to the Pentagon When he has no powers and has no reason to be there uh, You know, the Final scene of the movie Where Wolverine wakes up And he's already uh, You know, and he's already got this whole Timeline cross thing um, well, he shouldn't technically remember anything that transpired because he's supposed to be dead. But yet he, you know, now he gets to have this 30-year gap that they're trying to invent because he's supposed to be dead. Wait, you're, whenever, because they, they bring him up from the water. Right. And he's alive. Right. But that consciousness should have theoretically died. Because what happens when you are too traumatized while you're having, uh, while, while you're having Ellen Page's magical power? Which, by the way, she's not supposed to have. So there's that. I mean, you know, yeah. <clears throat> we'll continue. I, I definitely had the more positive, re- actually, a considerably more positive review. Um, so I'll, I'll let that yeah, go. like okay, so we've got okay, so so those are so those are big plot holes, super plot hole. Uh, okay, here we go. What's this? Time travel, you say? Well, I'm sure this won't be a source of super plot holes like you, every other fucking movie. Oh, this is from MoviePlotHoles.com, by the way. Okay. Who, who conveniently, I had all sorts of shit ready to rock. They found shit I didn't even find. So, yeah. <clears throat> uh, so, let's see here. So, there won't be a source of super plot holes like every other movie. Oh, wait. Let's start. 
Why send Wolverine in the 1970s to find Xavier and Magneto when they were enemies in order to find Mystique who is God knows where, when they could have sent him to just a few years earlier when Mystique was with Xavier and Magneto and all of them were in the same mansion and all friendly to each other and thus more prone to diplomacy? Right? I mean, you know, because it's all like, I couldn't send somebody back that far. I mean, holy crap, if I could, it would be like 30 years. Because Mystique killed, shot, shoots the guy. All they have to do is instead of sending him back to 73, send him back to 1962. Oh. When everybody's friends. When they're younger. Yeah, because yeah, she's okay, sitting gotcha. there saying, oh, the farthest I could do it would be like 10 years, 20 years. And he's like, well, pick me. I can, you know, I can do it. And then so she's, she's so they just settle on, why not, why not 40 years? Why not 1973? Why can, not, you know. Can I offer a, a quick solution? Sure, go answer ahead. Real quick to, well, it's to, to maybe some of these. And I think I... Okay. With the uh, this X-Men, Days of Future Past, it's based on a, a series of X-Men comics this guy wrote, right? That that I don't think was never really a part of... You know, it's like with Batman. You have various, like, Batman sure, yes, comics they're, going they're, Yeah, different Like the Dark Knight and stuff, and, sure. Or, right, you know. And so it's not... A lot of them aren't based on the same... The thing. Sure, but the problem is is that because Brian Singer yeah. chose to bring it back and do it in the future and bring back Patrick Stewart and bring back Ian McKellen and bring back Halle Berry it all and falls bring back the same it timeline. all falls into the original timeline established yeah. in the first three movies. Yeah. Why they couldn't leave well enough the fuck alone by having something that started and was perfect. We both really enjoyed X-Men First Class. Yeah. Um, it, as a matter of fact, wasn't that like the first movie we ever... Yeah. Did? Yeah. yeah. So we so that was the first movie we ever did, and we both really enjoyed it. And then they have now 1962. So they have uh, from 1962 to basically about 2000. So they've got 38 years to fuck around and have a great time <laughs> and do whatever the fuck they want. And Brian Singer comes back and says, no, I want to fix Last Dan because it was bad. Well, you know what? Don't fucking walk away and make a shitty-ass Superman movie about it. I but mean, they really didn't... Fix Last Stand. They just kind of, well, they didn't. They fucked it up even worse, is what I'm saying. They fucked them. So for here, here's a, here's a simple for instance. Okay. Um. Okay. Now this is supposed to fall into direct path of the Wolverine, right? Because we all remember the post credit scene where Patrick Stewart, the airport, and, yeah, and they come in. Yeah. Now what what was interesting about that? Do you rem- do we remember um what happened at the end of the Wolverine? Oh, he the costume. His claws. Yeah. Remember his claws? Yeah. What does his claws lack? Metal. Good. Okay, so we remember that now he has his bone claws again. Right. Okay? And yet, in X-Men Days of Future Past, in the future, uh, what does he have? Metal. Now, how do you fix that? Because the adamantium is gone. There is no more adamantium. So, he could regrow the bone, which is what he did. Right. But where the fuck does that come from? And because of those claws, because of those adamantium claws, that's what fucking causes him to be able to so quickly and effectively stab the fuck out of Ellen Page's mutant character. Because if it had just been the bone, they might have been able to stop him. Right. Oh, whoops! I mean, the, this whole fucking movie is just a goddamn waste of fucking time. My personal, one of my personal favorite here is this is an unaddressed issue. Okay. <laughs> it says, if Mystique can change her body mass to adapt to any form like Tyrion Lannister with a porn stash, why doesn't she always fight as a seven-foot-tall UFC fighter every time she has to punch people? 
because that would be too easy, and you wouldn't have cool characters like Quicksilver popping up for one of the yeah. best scenes in the movie. Um, you know, I mean, seriously. Oh, and then what about? Uh, oh, Quicksilver. Sure. Speaking of Quicksilver, super plot hole. By the way. Okay. Uh, movie plot holes is my dot com is now my one of my favorite websites ever. Speaking of overpowered characters, I present you Quicksilver. As witnessed from his perspective in his kitchen fight sequence, he experiences time at approximately 4,000 times faster than everyone else. This is why he can dick around for one minute around guards while bullets take almost a minute to reach their targets. The whole conflict of the movie would have been resolved if uh, Wolverine or Xavier simply brought him with them after he helped uh, free Magneto. Their plan was to catch Mystique. If only they had a time god with them that could catch Mystique in point zero zero one, uh, in basically a thousandth of a second, and take her out of the building without anyone noticing. Who could that be? Yeah, Screenwriting 101. You can't introduce a character that has the perfect power to correct your protagonist's problem and send him back to his worried mother because that's so much more important. Well, and I think this is when we really need a X-Men aficionado who could say, like, oh, well, an X-Men comic, Volume 3. But it doesn't matter. Verse because 5. It, see, that's the thing, is that the problem is, is that they yeah. have already gone so far out of the way to fucking distance themselves from any comic plot that the, you don't get to say, oh, it was part of a comic. It, it doesn't work that way anymore. Because you, have, you can't just pick and choose what you want and stick them into a new continuity. That's why they have break-off, branch-offs for the continuity in the comic books. These follow particular stories that may or may not directly involve the main theme of whatever the X-Men are doing. They've broken that up. You can't do that. You can do it in comic books because people may or may not read them. Um, You can even do them to a point where you want to have them eventually loop around or retcon things because time, you know, they they need to reset things. The problem is, is that you've only got three movies to base anything off of, really. Yeah, you can't count X Men days uh, X Men First Class because X Men First Class isn't part of that continuity anymore. It's its own set. It takes place all those years before, and that's what makes it so good. Um, you can't, you, you you know, if you're gonna force that situation by doing something like the Wolverine, which then can tie into Jean Grey, then fine. But now you have set up from the Wolverine to feed off of Last Stand and go directly to Days of Future Past. And then tie it to something that doesn't make sense anymore. Yeah. And then you're trying, oh, well, it, it just doesn't work. And I knew he was going to do that. I knew he was going to fuck it up. And I was so fucking pissed. I was watching this movie. And here's the worst part of it all. Brian Singer is a good enough director. Yeah. That on a technical level, with the exception of the special effects from uh, Magneto on the train, when yeah. he manipulates the metal on the train. Yeah. From that point on, the special effects just suck donkey dick. I don't know if they just ran out of money or what. So I'm so just the special effects there uh, were upsetting because it was pretty shoddy. But he's such a good director, and he is such a good, uh, you know, kind of like an actor's director that he gets great performances, and the performances themselves are all good. Wolverine's performance is good. Uh, Tyrion Lannister's performance is good. Um, and, and I know his name's not Tyrion Lannister, it's Peter Dinklage, but I just like to say that. <clears throat> um, oh, and also, 
uh, he plays Trist, right? Peter Dinklage p- plays Trist. Right. Okay, and then I can't remember if it was X Men United or X Men Last Stand. Uh, Trist is in that mo- is in one of those movies, and he's like a six foot four black guy. Just thought I'd throw that in there. Well, you know, <clears throat> the seventies was a very funky time. <laughs> it was a very yeah, very different time. I realized that, and um, you know, so now he's a, a you know a dwarf, but a wee man. Yeah. No, but seriously. So the performances themselves, all of them are good. Okay, the the performances themselves are good. The character interactions are good. It's just such a goddamn fucked up story that ruined everything that could have been for X Men First Class. That just pissed me off. It just pissed me off to no end. Seriously, I was so mad. So here's what I'm gonna end up the, saying because this is just taking so long. Oh, I'm gonna finish up with one small minor plot hole because uh, it's just funny. Quicksilver puts uh, puts on his headphones to listen to Time in a Bottle on his Walkman while he dispatches the guards in the Pentagon kitchen, even though the whole sequence lasts, um, you know, five one-thousandths of a second in real time. The thing is, is Quicksilver might be lightning fast, but his 1970s Sony Walkman sure as hell isn't. So there's no way he could have been listening to Time in a Bottle for all that time. Yeah. yeah, maybe he has like slowed down. I don't know. A well, lot. that's a, that's actually one of the major plot holes is that Quicksilver's ability is that he actually lives life at four thousandths at four thousand speed, which means it takes things forever to happen. It's not that he turns it on and off at will. Yeah, his mutant thing is that everything, pardon me, everything takes an hour. So for us to say, hey man, how's it going? For him, takes forever, which is, so how come he's just a juvenile delinquent and not insane? Right. So so for me, um, with the pass of uh, the shoddy special effects, starting from Magneto's train sequence on, uh, and then of course the fact that he stuffed the, the whole fucking thing with the story shit, contrasted with the fact that the performances are all outstanding and his and singer's direction of those characters is good two stars you would think i hate it you would think this would be zero but no that's how much of faith i have that's how that's how impressed i am in the abilities of those actors and actresses and and even brian singer for his direction of said characters but everything else you do the movie fucking sucks so two stars this is what i got to say about the movie Welcome back, Brian Singer. Hoorah. Pop the bottles, bring out the champagne. Oh, my God. I... I can't mute it on my end. Fuck. Enjoyed it, yeah. Or I can actually see Matt or hear him do this whenever he doesn't agree with something. <laughs> oh, I hear it. I hear it. No. Um, uh, I enjoyed it a lot. Yes. Movies. Especially when you get into movies like this and, uh, you know, even with... Uh, Superman, uh, the new Man of Steel. Uh, there are going to be a lot of like what uh, what his website, what the website was posting, where they're just going to have oodles of stuff. And yes, especially with a big fan base and uh, the the material. You know, there's hundreds of X Men comics and comics that spawned off from there about characters. You had the Wolverine movie. You have. The first two Brian Singer X-Men movie, you have First Class, you have Brett Ratner's Last Stand, which they do uh, fix it in some way. Um, there's going to be things that you are not 
going to be able to really avoid, especially with there being X-Men The Last Stand and then, like, the two Wolverine movies. Because even the two Wolverine movies kind of... Yeah, they, they, they jump... I think, I mean, they jumped the gun because they knew they were going to be standalone movies and they said that they didn't want them to directly tie into the X-Men movies, which, for some reason, they did that. Obviously, they did that. So... I really enjoyed this movie. I thought it was fun. I thought the look of it was great. I like how they didn't try to go all out and make the decade of the 1970s a complete caricature, but they did some fun things when Wolverine wakes up and he is in the 1970s with the music, with the car, with all the funkadelic stuff, but it's not done in excess, too much in, 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 in excess, like the band. Um, so it was fun like that I like Peter Dinklage playing the character and he is a wee man but it made for something interesting and something different more comic booky more cartoony even but the story that being Days of Future Past is based on a separate uh, comic book and with that we're going to get X-Men Apocalypse now comparing X-Men Days of Future Past Leading into X-Men Apocalypse and comparing this with at least the first two X-Men movies as well as whatever they might have gotten right or fixed from The Last Stand, I think the movie holds up pretty damn well. Yes, there are going to be problems with Quicksilver and all the things that he could do. I Again, we both aren't super big X-Men aficionados. Like, we don't know a lot about the history, or at least I don't know a lot about the history and I don't know a lot about... The what all characters can do or can't do. But they do say with X-Men Apocalypse, if they were going to make this movie, they would have had to set up the story and the characters like this. Major... Sp- well, okay, well, there's a big spoiler at the end of Days of Future Past, which I won't say, but you will see it. You will see characters that are brought back. And they're going to need to bring them back because they are in Apocalypse. Oh yeah, that was... That was some news I didn't, I didn't do. Oh, and uh, so that is something, you know, that, that we needed. And I don't know what Brian Singer is planning on doing with the X-Men franchise after this, but it will be able to continue with the younger generation of the X-Men characters, which is exciting. I enjoyed it. I thought it was fun. Um, it feels more of the same, which is my criticism, especially with the ending. In X-Men First Class, you have... The whole thing with the U-boat crashing on the beach and Xavier is in peril because he cannot, he's paralyzed and trying to stop a bullet and trying to do shit when he is lifeless. Well, in Days of Future Past, at the end of the movie, during the final battle, he is stuck with with scaffolding, you know, on top of him. You know, he's being crushed by scaffolding and he comes out fine. Not any more paralyzed than he was when he began with, which I guess is okay, but it just kind of feel, felt more like that. And a lot of it happened after uh, what Matt had criticism for with the, the train and the special effects with that. Just the whole lead up to the ending. Which felt more like just a lead into Apocalypse than the ending to an actual movie. But then again, I still enjoyed it other than that ending. And I give this movie 4.25 stars. I enjoyed it that much. Matt is making a very weird face. See, <laughs> just... I am surprised at yeah. the quarter star rating. I, 
You know, it took so much to get that one out of you. And then here we are, next episode. And you're just like, ah, quarter star rating. Okay, sure. That is very uh, critical. However, when he doesn't realize that if I disagree <laughs> with him, I listen and I appreciate his comments. Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah. Matt is the Benedict. Uh, I am. I am. That is the Benedict. <laughs> the Benedict. I am yeah. the poor Claudio who uh, is getting who is getting shamed. Oh my god! Because my love, which is which is Days of Future Past, is the hero, and I am being told that she is the hoe. The hoe. The horror. The hoe. Yeah. The, the whore. Ho- no, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. It's all. It's all in good fun. But four point two five. Matt's was two stars. This was exciting. <laughs> I just, I'm sorry. It just, you know, it just really, it, yeah. I've, I'm, I'm, yeah. I've already said it. I'm not going to say it again. But so. let us know what you think. Yes, we would really like to know. And, yeah. So you can tweet it at us, too, yeah. at the SLS cast. And then again. And email it to us, too. The SLS cast at gmail.com, but not for much longer. Exactly. Only because we're getting a new email address pretty soon. So yeah, and this review kind of reminded me of our Man of Steel review, which you liked Man of Steel more so than how. Well, then again, I did get pretty bitchy during that one. Well. <laughs> Come to think of it. Oh my god! Yeah. So. Yeah. All right. Well, that's gonna take it. Uh, take care of for the movies this week. Next week's movies are going to be A Million Ways to Die in the West. Maleficent and the documentary on Netflix, Terms and Conditions May Apply. And I believe that brings us to the end of yet another fantabulous episode. Well, then I guess you should spiel on. I guess I will do the spiel then. All right, so the music, as always, that you've been listening to, with the exception of uh, the discussions with Matt and Tim, which will be from museopen.org, uh is, of course, brought to us by our music partners, Kurais of Solace. You can check them out at Facebook.com and ReverbNation.com, both slash Kurais of Solace. We, of course, are still, and as always, the SLS Cast, and you can check us out at SLSCast.com. You can send us an email to TheSLSCast at gmail.com. You can follow us on Twitter at TheSLSCast. You can go to Facebook, search the SLS Cast there and find us, like us, all that kind of fun stuff. You can subscribe to us on iTunes and, of course, favorite us on Stitcher. And so... Until next time, this is Matt saying that thanks to Buddy Hackett, I get to say this. I found out that if you made people laugh, they like you. Most people got to like me because I made them laugh. When they didn't, I hit them. (laughs) Take care, guys. Talk to you next week. Thanks again for listening to the SLS Cast with your hosts, Matt and Tim. Remember that you can find us at slscast.com, at the SLS Cast for Twitter, also on Facebook, and you can always subscribe on iTunes. Thanks again for listening. <laughs> <laughs>